Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Jason Gardner. Jason is founder and CEO of Marketa, a $4 billion market cap fintech company that sells payment solutions to some of the biggest companies in the world like Square, DoorDash, and Uber. Jason, welcome to World of DAS. Lauren, thank you for having me. Wow, I'm excited. Now, I'm a big fan of MasterCard and Visa. I love those businesses. They could be arguably some of the very best businesses in the world. Their TAM is kind of like basically like the global economy. Why are these such durable businesses? And do you ever think they'll be dethroned from where they're at? So I, I don't think they will be dethroned and for, and for several reasons. So when the first credit card was created back in the 50s in Fresno, California... This is the Bank AmeriCard? The Bank AmeriCard, exactly. Yeah. And it was basically just a piece of paper. And there was credit being created at these merchants. And then over time, more and more banks wanted to issue these... these well, they're cards today, but they're basically pieces of paper back then. And then we saw like the knuckle busters, which... I've probably seen growing up, and now everything has been been fully digitized. But over time, now close to thirty thousand banks globally operate on the platform of Visa or Mastercard, and they have interconnected every merchant in the world that wants to accept payment cards, whether online or offline. So, the thought of that being dethroned is very hard to sort of wrap your head around. Because over time, paying with a card, especially here in the US, has become very, very commonplace. You see debit cards pretty much all over the world. Cash is still king. Like Cards is still a, a very small part of how we transact. Cash is still king. But we've seen this really change during COVID. Not only paying with a card, but really paying with your phone. And it's increased dramatically. And now you see throughout Asia, people aren't using cards necessarily. They're using their phones for QR codes. You have different wallets that have emerged. So the ability to have a card in your wallet and travel around the world and use that card everywhere has become very unique. So the thought of a consumer having another way of initiating a transaction other than a card is sort of hard to fathom when these networks have been built over many, many decades and are very, very hardened and trusted in regards to how both consumers and merchants interact. And you couldn't see something with like, Apple Pay or Google Pay or something like that, where they make deals slowly with these point of sale systems. And instead of taking 2%, they take 0.2% or something, and they go around some of these banks and credit card things. So you think that's just too fanciful, will never happen? Well, so interchange in the United States is regulated, but not regulated like the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, consumer interchange, so consumers using debit cards or credit cards, is significantly regulated. So it's much, much less... Like Australia or something like that. Like Australia. You're talking, uh, I think it's 12 to 18 basis points. It's 18 basis points in Canada. So the scale that they've achieved, to think that someone else is going to come in and invest in all of the infrastructure and change it, you have to also change consumer behavior. And an iPhone is not in everyone's hands. You know, yep. there's many different manufacturers. You know, the main ones are obviously Android-powered phones, and then iPhones or Apple products. 
So the thought of completely changing that is sort of hard to wrap your head around. I mean, you do see where when I either instantly issue a card product, whether debit or credit card, or I'm taking a picture of a card and then what's called tokenizing it and dropping it into a wallet, those main wallets are Samsung, Android device wallets, Google Pay, RG Pay, and Apple's wallets. So the thought of doing another way or finding another way to doing that and really significantly changing consumer behavior is kind of hard to hard to fathom. And from a consumer's perspective, I don't know that a consumer has any differentiation in their head between MasterCard and Visa. They may have it from the actual card. They may prefer their Chase card versus their Citibank card or something like that. But MasterCard versus Visa, I don't know that they really care in their mind or am I wrong about that? Is the brand of one of those driving any consumer behavior? Well, I think the brands are important. 70% of consumers have a Visa card in their wallet. So that brand matters, but there is not a real discernible difference between the two from a consumer paying for something. They can still travel around the world and use a Visa card or a MasterCard and it operates the same exact way. Every merchant who takes one takes the other, right? Pretty much. Yeah, there, there's no yeah. there's no difference between the two. I mean, they have become the sort of ubiquitous brands that merchants will accept. And in some places, so parts of Europe, MasterCard is seen as a, a better brand or a more thoughtful brand than Visa. It's it's where where do the majority of people in specific countries have a brand? And that might be MasterCard or Visa. But there's no discernible difference at the point of sale for the merchant or the consumer. They both do the exact same thing. And from the bank making the deal with either MasterCard or Visa, is it who's going to give me the best deal? Who's going to service me the best? Like, Why do banks choose one versus the other? And then sometimes they'll switch from one to the other. Yeah. So it comes down to all of the features and functions and accoutrement and rewards and what the network is willing to do, what the bank is willing to do. So there could be like some fraud detection thing that they'll throw in free or some other service or something like that to get you to switch from or or just better service in general. It's better economics. It could be better better service. But it comes down to features, functions, economics of what the brand is trying to create. Most banks typically have both. I don't know of an instance of a major, major bank that is just completely on one brand. Yeah. Now, the majority of it, say 70% or 90% might be on one brand and then have some products for the other brand. But we typically see Visa uh, only because it's the brand that is in most consumer wallets. And then Obviously, after that, you have MasterCard, American Express, and Discover making up the remainder. And then you have like JCB, China Union Pay, which are very small compared to the major brands. Now, before I met you, I thought payments were basically simple. There was like a bank that represented the consumer, and then there was another processor that represented the merchant, and they would like do some sort of deal, and that's how everything would be done. But then I remember you started like talking to me about all there's like 13 steps going through the whole process and everything. And it was much more complex than I had realized. What are some of the arcane things that only somebody like you, like steeped in payments would understand? I always refer to payments as deceptively complex. (laughs) Because when you go buy something, whether online or offline, it should just work. And I I think as someone who... For the layman, they don't know what's going on in the background, but the technology and the infrastructure and the scalability and the regulatory environment and the banks and all the players in the system is really massive, really complex. 
And you're just trying to create, I think in anything is create a really good consumer experience. So that's what it comes down to. So I would say that the thing that most people don't know is how do I travel around the world and I can use the same card and it basically works everywhere. So when you insert your card, tap your card, swipe your card, tap your phone, enter a 16-digit number online if you're using Visa and MasterCard, it generates what's called an ISO 8583 message. So ISO is international standard. And 8583 is the standard that is generated at the point of sale or by the acquirer. They're called acquirers because they acquire merchants to use their equipment. And that basically allows you to travel around the world. So when Marketa as the issuer processor of the card product itself, we receive that ISO message. We know how to parse that message because of that format. And there's about 192 fields, typically 10 or less are being used. It would be obviously amount card number, who you are, merchant, could be uh, SIC code, depending on the equipment, could be longitude, latitude, could be MAC address, there could be a whole host of different things. And then basically, you're using that information, which is tied to an accounting system of sorts, whether credit, debit, or prepaid. And then you're authorizing, declining, partially approving that ISO 8583 message, and then sending that advice back to the point of sale which if everything is approved and it's an authorized transaction, your receipt pops out and you move on your way. And that ISO message is all the formatting of that is determined by the merchant processor. Like, could you have somewhat different formatted ISO messages and stuff like that based on, okay, somebody uses Toast as a processor and someone uses Square as a processor or something like that? It's irrelevant. Every acquirer, whether it's Toast or Square or Adyen, is generated in the exact same format. Okay. Because that allows you to travel around the world. And no matter which equipment you're using, it's generating the same message. Now, the merchant can or the acquirer can control what is put into the fields of that ISO so you message. Put more things or fewer things or something more like that. More things or fewer yeah. things. Or the merchant name could be spelled slightly differently or et cetera. Yeah. So you can have a couple different things. So like a Sephora counter or a Chanel counter inside of a Nordstrom's, uh-huh. that's what you have is what's called merchant ID or terminal ID. And the merchant ID or terminal ID will be in that message and will identify like a store in a store so that you have the correct data on the receipt or you know where you basically bought something on your receipt. So there's many different ways to sort of manipulate the data that's inputted into the format, but it needs to be specific data associated with that cell, for lack of a better term. That's probably the thing that allowed me to create Marketa from the very beginning, because that's the unique thing that I found that allowed us to essentially put a bunch of Groupons on a card because we found that that unique ISO message allowed us to unlock value at a specific store. And you mentioned there's mainly like 10 core fields that are used. Do you wish there were like 30 fields that were used and you wish everyone used these other fields, but no one's using them and it would be a better world if they did or would more data essentially, is there a way to make things even better? No, I think at some point there's diminishing returns because you don't want to have to parse that data. Like at a certain number of fields, you have more than enough data to do your job as an issuer processor. And anything on top of that like might be nice, but it's not specifically going to make your life any better. One of the things like with SafeGraph, we have things like a store ID. We have data on specific places, right? So on the local cafe or something like that, or the local McDonald's, 
we'll have store IDs and then certain transaction providers buy that data from us because they want to match it up. Let's say for this particular McDonald's, we'll give them the store IDs and they'll know it's actually the McDonald's on 555 Main Street and not the one on 542 First Street a few blocks away or something like that. And the reason why they have to do all these machinations is because things like the actual address of the place isn't passed with the transaction today. Exactly. So you might see that with a Walmart. It might be Walmart number 543, but there's no address there. Yep. So you have to be able to begin to map that out over time. So you can do an API call to Google Maps because you've mapped out in your system that Walmart number 543 is in Emeryville, California or something like that. And then you know when that pops up that you've already mapped that out. And that over time begins to just propagate within your in your system. There might be a chance where, say, Walmart number 543 swap some equipment with Walmart number 544. Yeah, yeah. And that's where a the lat long of your phone might come in to understand, wow, they just issued a process in Pinole, California based on the app, but it's actually a different terminal. That terminal should be in Emeryville, California. So there's different ways of figuring out where the transaction is actually occurring, but it's not a perfect science. We don't necessarily need to do that today. We use it for fraud-related activities. Well, it's also helpful when giving the consumer an update of that you did this, it's helpful to tell the consumer, oh, it was actually at this particular Starbucks that you went to. So from a consumer UI perspective, giving them that information can be really helpful. Yeah. So you're reducing fraud at the point of sale. And also it creates a richer experience for the consumer to know where they actually just authorize a transaction. Because right away, if you authorize a transaction, especially an in-person transaction, and you weren't actually there, you know right away it was fraud and you can act on it much faster than you would in the past. Now, some of the payment ecosystem has been around for really, really, really long time, maybe even at the point when you and I were born or something. What piece of the payment ecosystem is the most outdated right now? The most outdated, I would say there's two areas. There's ACH, which is the automated clearinghouse that allows me to like pay a bill. And that takes multiple days for some reason, right? Multiple days for that to happen. And what's the reason for that? Why can't that be solved easily? Well, it's a number of things. So first, banks can hold on to money longer. So there's obviously a benefit of doing that, and when, especially when interest rates rise. Uh, it reduces fraud. So it gives you time to... Oh, like to unwind the transaction or something? or Unwind the transaction. It's how the banks work. So the banks made the rules. They built the system. You know, The automated clearinghouse operates only within the US. You know, Globally, there's another network called SWIFT. Yep. And then probably checks. At this point, it doesn't really make sense that we're printing checks or have to deposit checks. It should be all electronic at this point. Like I should be able to go to a restaurant, I pay for something and they receive their money immediately. But that doesn't happen. It takes them typically 72 hours and potentially longer if it's a late Friday night and there's no settlement over the weekend, depending on what institution that you're using. So those are probably the two areas that I think over time, you will see this begin to speed up. So the Fed is launching something called FedNow, which is under this term called real-time payments, which is essentially when you transact, money is moving in real time, similar to a wire or something like that. But the speed also needs to create a bunch of rules around that 
so that you have the ability as a consumer to either reject the transaction, decide that you didn't want to pay that bill and you want to get your money back. So there's a lot of sort of rules of negotiation around how this is supposed to happen. Why is it that things don't get settled on Sundays? It just seems so antiquated. Because it's just how the banks work. You would think that they should be settling every single day, but hey, it's banks aren't open typically on Sundays or a bank holiday. Like if it's Labor Day, there's not a person doing it, right? Or is there? Is there like, is there Bob in the back just like looking at these tooth bills anymore? Yeah, it's not. (laughs) You would think so, but it's just how the system works and automating it is all obviously all the technology is there, but you still have checks and balances and human beings need to be part of that checks and balance. Um, do you think crypto fits somewhere in the future payments or or is it just, it's going to hit do a lot of things, but it won't hit like the payment infrastructure? We actually see it now. So we see USDC. Yeah. So stable coins around settlement. Visa and MasterCard have adopted this. They're using companies like Circle and others for their network to go settle money. We power a number of crypto businesses, uh, Coinbase being the biggest, which is I can spend crypto at the point of sale. I mean, you're actually converting to fiat currency, but for a consumer, they're able to spend any of their crypto holdings at the point of sale. And it, it might seem like magic to them, but there's infrastructure that's built to go and do that. There is a lot going on around the world in regards to crypto and especially stablecoin. Every government is involved, but you know, if it's not fiat currency, the governments think it's very spooky. You know, they don't really understand it. It's all living on computers. They're not the politicians typically aren't the the sort of the deepest thinkers around tech and anything, especially having to do with money and marrying that with tech seems very spooky. So there will be regulation coming. But it's coming. And it would make sense to create more digital tokens over time or crypto for governments as they move away from over time to the current monetary system that we have. Today. And it seems that a lot of folks, including a lot of folks at the Fed, have been talking about creating some sort of like central bank digital currency. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, because you see this with the euro. And whether countries feel like that was a good idea or a bad idea, the thing about crypto is it's completely decentralized. There is no government behind it. And this just comes down to the government wants to be able to regulate their own currency. We've seen where, especially in Europe, the value of the euro has gone down pretty significantly based on the current economy. So to have sort of a one central bank for all global currency, that's really hard to fathom. But a US digital coin is certainly something there that most people could probably wrap their heads around and a change to current fiance currency today. Now it would be, you know, you can't manipulate it. Like it would just be very stuck to whatever the value of the dollar would be. But moving away from paper money to digital would definitely make sense over time, I think. But if you had like a digital currency, if you, if you think of like a, a, in a typical crypto thing, there's like two kind of core features of crypto. One is that it's decentralized. And I can't imagine a central bank wanting something like decentralized. And then the second is that there's like an open ledger so that anyone in the world can see every single transaction. And I can't imagine necessarily a central bank like wanting the ledger to be completely open. They might want to have access to the ledger, but I don't know if they want everyone in the world to have access to the ledger. So would it just be just, is it like a cryptocurrency in name only, but it's really just digital dollars or how does it actually work? I think it's digital dollars. 
Today, when we send money back and forth electronically, there's a record yep. in regards to who sent the money, who received the money. And then if they receive the money and they spend at the point of sale with a card, you know, there, there's a transaction there if the bank pays their bills. So it's, but it's the record isn't forth. centralized. It's stored on many different servers and many different companies. The major difference is, is that coin is now there is no matter where it goes, there's a ledger. But if I go pay a bill, I have, you know, my face, I pay, I pay my Verizon bill. I have no idea what Verizon did with that, yep. with that money, but a coin would allow you to basically see what happens. So I don't think they would ever share that, but it's good to see, I guess, if the money's being used for nefarious purposes, they would be able to, to track it. No, I've known you for a while. You're a serial founder. I mean, there's a statistic that companies are way more likely to be successful if their founders have actually been founders before. And one obvious reason is, okay, the founders are just much less likely to make mistakes the second time around. But what do you think some non-obvious reasons that serial founders or serial entrepreneurs are more successful? Well, it's... uh... I mean, I've made mistakes three or four times. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm not going to make the same mistake. And companies actually are built through a series of mistakes. It's not like you decide you want to go do something and then you operate in a direct from A to B. Like it's actually a squiggly line, like all over the place. Like, yeah, there's this used to be this dirty word within Silicon Valley about what was called a pivot. I mean, you and I know very well about <laughs> totally. pivots. And that's just the nature of actually building a business. You test and fail, you learn, you course correct, and then eventually the squiggly line becomes a lot less noise in the system. And then you find what's called product market fit. And then you understand scale and what you need to invest in. And, so, and by the way, and even there, like sometimes that only lasts up to a certain amount and then it taps out or like there's some other exactly. thing that, that disrupts it. Yeah. So I think as a serial entrepreneur, so my first company failed, I sold my second company, I took my third company public. I am now, I, like, I think of myself as an elite entrepreneur because I've experienced basically all uh-huh. three. And failure, you learn a lot more from failure because you realize why you failed. And if you're a thoughtful, low ego person, you're going to understand that it actually begins and ends with you and the things that you did and the decisions that you made. So in the beginning, when you're first starting out, you sort of fake it till you make it. And then over time, you start to really understand the decisions that you need to make in service to the business. And as an entrepreneur, you actually like building things. And the outcome is you sell the company, you take it public or it fails, but you have to fall in love with the idea of building and working with really smart people and coming up with ideas, architecting them, building them, deploying them, testing them with customers, and then you see them grow. And then you build this pattern around what that takes and the effort and what it looks like. And then you start to invest in that wholeheartedly. It's, it's uh, Being an entrepreneur is very much an addiction. You really fall in love with it. And it can be all-consuming. And do you think what's more important to founders? Do you think it's like having a few brilliant insights? Or is it like just the opposite of just making fewer mistakes than everybody else? I think it's both. Companies don't... I've said this many times. Companies don't die from starvation. They actually die from overeating. They die from gluttony. They're trying to do way too yeah. much. And they spread everything way too thin. And next thing you know, you're either out of money or the one area that is really beginning to take off, you are not investing enough in it and you suffocate it. 
So there's a big balance there. I remember, so my second company, Property Bridge, allowed you to pay rent electronically. And our first conference we went to, it was payments, marketing, and management. It was like a whole platform. Nobody wanted to talk to us about marketing and management. They only wanted to talk to us about payments. So right after the conference, we all got together and said, you know what? Forget this marketing and management thing. Everybody is going to talk about payments. Let's just go focus on that. And obviously, that's a risk. And that risk paid off. But you could clearly see that the product market fit was payments and not everything else. And then you need to invest in that. And those are actually really, really difficult decisions to make. I remember when you first started Marketa, you had like a consumer card and that didn't really take off. And then you kind of shifted the business toward like a platform with an open API where companies can build their own card products. Like, how did that shift happen? So the company got started. I was having, you know, like right off the sushi place off Market Street. It's not there anymore. Uh, this is late 2009, December 2009. My friend Suki Singh. And he just said, you know, let's go put a bunch of, you're, you're a payment,er go put a bunch of Groupon coupons on a payment card. And so I, I knew nothing about issuing and processing. I wanted to go solve that problem. And to solve it, we had to sort of, sort of go build our own card because you can't like go out and sell something without somewhat hardening it in the yeah. beginning. So we built the Marketa card, which was our own card. We got a call from Facebook in 2012 for Facebook. It's your birthday. 100 friends want to send you 100 different gift cards and 100 different merchants. We need to have them all live on one card, which is like the Groupon thing that we solved. And we built it for them and they tested it. Oh, so you weren't even like expecting to go into that market. That's like that random call from Facebook shifted you? No. So we, in the original plan, we were going to open up the platform. We were going to be an API platform and all that, but we had to go test it in the beginning, our own product. But what was serendipitous about the relationship with Facebook is they obviously wanted to build a really great interface. And we got to work with their engineers and product people and rooms and whiteboards. And I just fell in love with it. Like convincing a consumer that a 7% return on your money guaranteed is you should take that. And that was the Marquetta card itself for groceries. And just the arguing with consumers, I just, I really didn't like, uh-huh. like I'm not a, I don't build pretty interfaces. That's not how my brain works. I'm more of an infrastructure person. So to be able to work with amazing engineers and product people and see what they wanted to build, we fell in love with. So we began basically beginning to expose the APIs. That was the plan. We actually sped it up working with Dave Matter, who was our chief product officer at the time and Tony Ford, who was our CTO at the time. And we planned on opening up the API at the end of 2014. And when we did, it just took off and we found just great product market fit. And then obviously, scale brings a whole host of other issues. But when we opened it up, that was when we found that we had the right business model. How do you think about customer concentration? Like when Twilio went public, they disclosed that the vast majority of their revenues came from WhatsApp and they had this very high customer concentration. I know when Marketo went public, you guys did something similar with uh, Square, where Square was your biggest customer. Like, how do you think there's obviously these pluses of like working super closely with the great company like Square, but there's always this worry that, whoa, we have like so much of our revenues tied in with one company. Yeah. So so you're referring to is concentration. And we're not looking to Square or really anybody else to solve our concentration problem. That's something that we need to solve by building a lot more Squares. Square is is using a lot of our platforms. So we have the Teen card and the Square card and the Cash App card and 
and ACH and we powered Afterpay, they acquired Afterpay. We, we now help them with integrating with that with a point of sale. So they use a big, big part of our platform. And back in 2016, when they approached us of wanting to build the Cash App card, and we launched that in January 5th of 2017, my birthday. That's a good birthday present. Yeah, it, it was you're starting at zero. And they began building from there. And obviously, Square now block and cash up. They build beautiful, beautiful products and really understand the consumer. And they're building products for consumers that they tend to adopt. So we've seen that success. And we are a platform. Everything we build is for the platform. We implement it into the platform and we get ideas from our customers. We give our customers ideas, our own sort of entrepreneurial feel about where we think the world is going. And the goal is to build a bigger and bigger business over time through our customers. Why do you think Cash App has just been so successful and it's been, it's one of like, the most successful rollouts of a Square was already a great company. It was already doing some really good things. And then they roll out this like new exciting thing. And it's just been marvelous how many people use it and how good it is. Like, what did they do right? What can we learn from that? Design, 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 design. Oh, really? So it's it's like UI all the way down. They know how to design. A consumer experience is paramount. And if it feels like it's magic then you've kind of nailed it. And we've all experienced it, whether it's a mobile app or online or even at a restaurant for service or the food doesn't taste good. But when the experience is effortless, the button is in the right place or the notification is correct, it gives you a sense of security and you want to just use it more and more and more. They have nailed that. Like They do beautifully, beautifully designed both hardware and software and experiences. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Then you tie that into marketing about how they market the product, the ability to instantly issue the card into Apple Pay and Cash App and Apple and Visa worked together on that back in 2016. That was the first card to be instantly issued, which was that was like magic. You're in DC, I'm in California, you lose your wallet, I have your phone, you can sign up for the card and I can send you $100 within minutes and you can be using it at the point of sale. Amazing. So... That's an amazing experience. And they have really harnessed that to go build these beautiful products, which now you've seen the success of that on our platform and just continues to grow. And also, I guess they get to pick their competition. Like most of their competition has terrible UIs. They're really hard to use. So a lot of the credit cards at all or banks I use are it's just very hard to navigate or even know where to go or something. And then occasionally you see a great UI, maybe a new fintech company like Robinhood has a really good UI and, and it just becomes overwhelmingly positive to use. Exactly. You can't underestimate a great experience. Okay. And that's interesting because I would say most of these financial services companies, if you think of like all the big ones, I doubt like UI is in the top 10 things that they care about. No, because even if I go into my Chase app or the Chase website, there's a bunch of other things that I'm being shown yep. that have nothing to do with my relationship with the bank. Yeah. So being able to go in and get to what I exactly need is... I love efficiency. So the, the efficiency of that, I fall in love with. But all the other noise, like I don't really need to see that stuff. I think that's in some ways, a lot of the large financial institutions are over-marketing. 
they wanted you to get uh, deeper into the relationship. I want what I want. Like I have my relationship with the Kaiba Chase Sapphire card. That's my card. I use it for a lot yeah. of things. I just want to be able to go in and manage that specifically and not see everything else. Or for instance, you might have a Chase Amazon card. You have to go to chase.com to manage that. You're not going to Amazon to manage that. So again, it comes down to the consumer experience and consumers love a great experience. Now, you've been CEO of Marketo since the, well, I guess since the founding forever. And now you're changing your role to executive chairman. And what were your main considerations in like making that decision? What does thought go through that? How would you advise other entrepreneurs thinking through those things? So I started the company back in 2010, took it public in June 9th of 21. And being a private company CEO and being a public company CEO is vastly different. What's something people would just not understand if they weren't a public company CEO? Well, as a private company CEO, our board was VCs. Yeah. And small number of people. Yeah, the most part, they're like, Jay, keep doing what you're doing. We're over here busy counting all of our money. <laughs> so you can invest here, invest there, change this, change that, increase the budget, decrease the budget. Like you have full reign to decide as a public company CEO, what, as a private company CEO, what you want to do. As a public company CEO, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders and you have to communicate with your shareholders. So it's very different in regards to having a board of a few VCs versus all of these could be individual retail or large institutions who are holding your stock. And you have a fiduciary responsibility to communicate effectively for the things that you have to do. So as you have quarterly earnings calls, you give them guidance, you give them an update on how the quarter is doing, and it's fully public. So as a private company, no one really knows what you're doing, especially your competitors, And now it's all out in the open in regards to how you're performing, how much cash you have on your books, what your net revenue or profit margin is. So it's all out there. And it's definitely a change from the private company to the public company. Then you're obviously focusing on quarterly performance and parts of it that you really fall in love with. And there's parts that are new and you need to learn over time. But for me, so we went public and Martha Cummings, who is on our board, she leads NomGov, had been asking me about succession planning. And I just felt like I'm so busy just you know, kind of learning my way through being a public company CEO. I sort of punted it. It came up again in January. So I was like, well, let me go talk to my friends. Let me go talk to founder CEOs, founder CEOs who maybe moved over to the exec chair role. What was their experience? How did they go through the hiring? And then I started to look at myself. Like I'm a zero to one person. If you're familiar with Peter Thiel's book about you know entrepreneurs one of my favorite start books. from zero yeah. and, they, and they build a one. It's it's like it's such a great book around what it takes. And the more I thought about the next phase, this is after a year we went public. I sort of dug in even more about what I wanted to do next, and I found that next for me is actually focusing on the things that I love at Marketa, which is our customers, our products, and our people. And I am getting farther away from that over time by being a public company CEO. And then what if I had this... And I learned this through the conversations I had with other CEOs. What if I had somebody who was born, bred, and trained for the stage to take the company from one to infinity? And I can partner with that person, almost like co-founding the next phase of the business so that... I can be put to work by them telling me these are the areas that we need to go focus on. And I can have a partner that can help me and put me to work 
while I moved from chairman to exec chairman. So today I'm the, the founder, the CEO, the chairman, and the largest shareholder in the company. So as the largest shareholder in the company, I have almost have a fiduciary responsibility to myself around the next phase. And I thought, wow, what if I found a business partner? Like similar to like you can in history, there's lots of great. There's like Reed Hoffman and Jeff yeah. Weiner and Scott Cook and Brad Smith. And like finding that relationship and the value that has been built has been tremendous. And I really fell in love with finding the next CEO so I could focus on the things that I'm the best in the world at, which is our products and our customers and our culture, and then take the company to the next phase with them. And I felt like for me, that's the best next step for Marketa. This is it's my baby. It's you know, it's a young adult now. So it's almost like it's like I'm as they go to a new teacher or a new guide. I am reached the point where I can only homeschool my young adult. And now I need to find the guide for their next phase of life. And I want to partner with that person to take the company to the next step. And I'm really thrilled about it. And I felt like I needed to be very transparent about it because it's one of the core values I started the company with. And I didn't want to be creeping behind around the scenes and signing NDAs because I thought if it came out, I would have been mortified. And I would have to explain what was going on. And I felt that being truthful... Now, I can't control what people think. Nobody can. But being truthful, that truth will become evident over time based on the activities of finding the next CEO. And I've been very upfront and communicative with our shareholders in the company about this is the process for me and and this is what's best for the company. You mentioned folks like Reid Hoffman and Scott Cook, who've been very successful executive chairmen, but there actually aren't a lot of cases of executive chairmen out there. There's not a lot of literature. I don't know if there's any like books on how to be an executive chairman. There's a lot of ones of how to be a board member, how to be a founder, how to be a CEO, but executive chairman, there isn't, it's almost like you have to create your own path to do it or were you like out there interviewing the small number of successful executive chairmen to figure out what works? I was interviewing the small number of executive chairmen, figuring out what works. And universally, they all have low to no ego. Interesting. Because the buck's still going to stop at the CEO. And so you have to transfer that authority to this new person. The success and failure of the business is on the CEO's shoulders. And what I found in studying other exec chairmen and having conversations with them is how they thought. The next phase of the company... I don't have the skill set for it. And finding someone who's born, bred, and trained, whether internally or externally, for this next role, it will drive the success deep into the future. And I found that the people that I spoke with, they all loved that process and the thinking around that. And I found that I had kinship in that and how my brain worked and how I think about the future. And there was a really strong connection between me and the folks that I spoke with around how they decided what they wanted to do. And I found that I was actually in the same place that they were when they made these decisions. So just really foundationalized, if that's even a word, that I was heading in the right direction in regards to not only myself, but the future of the business. By the way, I don't know if the audience knows, I am a Marketa shareholder. For me, I've got probably 1% of my net worth in Marketa. I appreciate everything that you're doing as well. A huge fan of it. So that's my disclosure. I know that you once said all CEOs are going through the same thing as you. Like, Would you say that's also true for CEOs that aren't founders? No. As a founder, you come up with the idea, 
You convince people to leave high-paying jobs for hope certificates. That's being options that they're somehow going to make a lot of money in the future. Everything needs to be a fait accompli. Like the train has left the station, and you need to have passion to the point of fire coming out of your eyeballs to convince people to part with their money, people to part with their jobs, customers to buy your technology, especially in the early days when it's unproven and you haven't seen real scale yet. That's very different than the CEO who is taking over from the founder and their job is different, but equally as hard, which is how do I build a sustainably profitable company? How do I find efficiency at scale? These are the areas that they're very skilled at and can really lead the company into the future to build Obviously, uh, larger, you know, whether it's market cap customers, and there's lots of different metrics you can point at. But those folks have been born, bred, and trained for that phase of growth versus the founder CEO, which is starting from nothing. You know, it takes a very certain person to want to be able to manage that. You and I are both entrepreneurs. You know that mentality in regards to building from scratch. There's a love affair and addiction about it that. You can't imagine doing anything else with your life and you're just wholly exhausted physically, mentally, and spiritually trying to build this business. And it's I just love it. There are a lot of pluses of being a public company, but also, as you mentioned, there are a lot of minuses of being a public company as well. And 20 years ago, you kind of really didn't have a choice. If you're a venture-funded company, you had to go public. A lot of times people even did it to raise money. And there weren't like secondary markets. Today, like you do have more options. People could sell their shares on secondary markets. The venture capital firms have secondaries themselves. So there's ways for them to get liquidity and stuff like that. You don't have to necessarily go public. Like, What was the driving thing to say, okay, we're going to go through it. We're going to make ourselves a public company. Well, I think first is, what does the future look like? So we're simply scratching the surface in regards to the opportunity. We process less than 1% of the transactions, even in the US. So there's lots and lots of greenfield. There's vast oceans of opportunity for Marketa. So I think that's number one is like, what does the future hold? And how do we take the next step as a company? You go through the process of deciding to go public about 18 months before you actually go public. I was having conversations with the board, conversations with the exec team. And then it really comes down to commitment. The process of going public is an extraordinary amount of work. There's a lot of controls than being a public company. You do a sort of a gap analysis in the beginning to understand the difference between where I am today and where I need to be by the day you go public. And I fell in love with the process, actually. I didn't know what to expect. I spoke to other public company CEOs, founders who had taken companies public and I held a whole host of different stories and thoughts in regards to what their process was. I just fell in love with our process and became really excited about the outcome of going public. I loved the roadshow to the point where I told the bankers the last day of the roadshow, can I do this for another day? Like, I actually love it. That is the first time I've heard someone say they love the roadshow. Yeah, the bankers said they've never heard that before (laughs) from a CEO. And I just loved it because I got to be on a platform to talk to potential investors about the business and where we're headed. Like I love Marketa. And my love and desire and passion to talk about the business is never ending. So I had the opportunity to do that on 
our global stage. So I found, I absolutely just loved it. I really did. Why do you think it helps the business? I mean, there are these very successful, very large private companies. There's Cargo, there's Coke Industries, there's Mars, there's Fidelity. There's like these incredibly successful private companies that have been private for, in some cases, over a hundred years. What's the advantage to the business of being a public company? Well, but being remembered, like we're a venture backed yeah. business and venture capitalists, you know, are they, they are looking for some outcome, some exit eventually. You don't start a business saying you're going to be an IPO company or even sell. It's more likely you're just going to fail. So for us, it felt like the next outcome. I didn't want to sell. I felt like we were just scratching the surface. There's so much more to do. Going out, we raised $1.2 billion in the IPO. I felt that even back then, that winter is going to be coming. You know, we were on a 11 or 12 year bull run in the market. I want to be able to have real liquidity on the balance yeah. sheet. And we're working with a lot of great companies. And as we move into large financial institutions, being a public company gives you a lot more options. It also creates transparency. So the companies that you're working with know that you're building for the future and you have staying power and you're a strong business because you're talking about your performance on a quarterly basis. And that just builds a lot of trust. And that transparency is driving transparency and trust go hand in hand. That allows you to operate in a way which is very different than being in a private company. Nate, you've spoken openly about having an executive coach. What's something that your coach was able to help you with that maybe you never predicted? Something he said, he said, you are the master of coherence as the CEO. And I like love that. Your job is to communicate. Where are we headed? What are we going? You and the team are behind the mission to, to drive the mission. And you are the master of coherence, which comes down to all the things that we're doing. So people really understand what their roles and responsibilities are in service to the mission. So being the master of coherence is you have to be coherent in everything that you're talking about and focused on and hiring so that people are like, oh, yes, this is how it helps me. And I, I still don't do a great job at that. I really try to do my best. I think we all struggle with being able to be completely coherent. I would say even more so in the time of COVID, but being the master of coherence is really the job of the CEO, being able to communicate very effectively in regards to what is going on within and outside the business and, and where you're headed. One of the things I struggle with there in trying to be coherent is I think to be coherent, you have to be very repetitive. You have to keep drilling down the yeah. message over and over. Say the same thing a thousand times. Yeah. And I don't like to say the same thing over and over. I want to mix it up and change it and stuff like that. And every advice of any CEO coach has always been, no, you just have to like keep repeating it over and over and over yeah. again. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, it's harder to do. And we're certainly a far more remote company than we were two and a half years ago. You have to communicate. The team needs to understand the things that you're looking to do as a CEO and where you're headed are cascading throughout the company from me to the team to the next line of manager. Is it like you do like every month, you do all hands and you send like a letter to the company every week or what is there some sort of like mechanism or some sort of regular thing that of way you can There's a lot of mechanisms that I think we should be using that we don't. We should be using more of them. Yeah. I mean, we have all hands meetings. That's certainly one way to do it. I had a CEO tell me the other day is every Sunday, they pick a song and the song is the background music and they just talk. And they said that what they've received a return for that from the company has been tremendous. So it's like they like, could make like a video or something. 
Yeah, just like a video off their phone and just talk about the week. There's a lot of ways out there that people are implementing, but being the master of coherence is the thing that has really resonated with me. Interesting. All right, this has been awesome. Okay, last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? Some jackass wrote this article on TechCrunch about sacrifice all of your relationships with your friends and family to become an entrepreneur and like work 100 hour weeks. And it's, it's actually just a bunch of nonsense. The best ideas come to you when you're actually with your family or out with your friends or taking a walk or exercising. Like, yes, I work 80 hours a week, but I find a lot of time to spend with my family, my wife of 23 years and my kids. And I was up in Seattle seeing my mom and sister and niece and stepdad over the weekend. And you need to have that time to just shed the work so your brain can actually bloom and think about the things that you want to do. And in those instances is when you really kind of do your best work because text, phone calls, Slack, email isn't work. It's actually in the service of work. The work actually happens is when you really sit down, could be just you and a piece of paper, really thinking about things. And the only way you can really open your brain up is just getting outside and being with friends. Like Those are really where the best ideas come from. Okay. I love that. Now, I follow you, uh, JM Guards on Twitter. Is that the best people for to engage with you on the internet? Yeah. I'm not a big social media person, but if you want to get in touch with me there, that's probably the best place. Or Jason at Marketa.com if you want to email me. So those are typically the best places. Okay. Awesome. Jason, thank you. Jessica, thank you very much for joining us at World of Das. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you, Orna. This is great. Really appreciate it. And I will, I'm sure I will see you soon. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.